Fun with Failure is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hi, welcome to Fun with Failure, a podcast about individual and organizational resilience. It's where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrera. Let's have some fun. My guest today is Garth Moulton. Garth has a great 11-year startup story about his experience as a co-founder of Jigsaw.com. It started at a whiteboard with two guys and led to a $175 million exit at Salesforce.com. At Jigsaw, Garth ran sales, business development, client support, and the customer community. After the sale in 2011, he co-founded a social TV second screen company called Other Screen that showed great signs of success, like generating buzz in the local TV market, signing users, and raising venture capital. But they failed to gain significant traction and closed in 2012. In 2013 and 14, Garth ran all things customer-related for Circleback a company that he's invested in and continues to advise. Today, he works for People, Inc. and is responsible for driving revenue through the channel and strategic brands. Hi, Garth. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So Innovation Week is coming up, and you're taking part in Seed the South. Seed the South is a high-profile event bringing together startups and investors as a way to highlight, celebrate, and grow the entrepreneurial scene here in Charlotte and the Southeast. Before we talk about Seed the South and your advice for people pitching at the event, I want to start with the lightning round. Sure. So what's your (laughs) non-work-related superpower? (laughs) Wow. Um... I don't know. I'd, I'd say that I have a, a wide variety of people from walks of life, friends, otherwise, that uh, I think uh, call on me for uh, good cheer and support. I think, uh, I think my general attitude is, uh, is my superpower. Okay. What about a non-work-related kryptonite? Non-work-related kryptonite? Something that... Yeah, just something you're kind of just naturally bad at. You just can't. You just can't make it work. My penmanship is really bad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry. Is that like is that building myself up by, uh, by, by downplaying uh, my weakness? <laughs> so what about, um, what's your definition of failure? My definition of failure is striving for something that you don't want or need, whether you get it or not. Interesting. Okay, cool. Do you like to fail? No. Okay. Some people say yes. I always think it's an interesting question. Liars. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the obvious, like losing a loved one, what are you afraid of? Uh, I'm afraid of uh, wasting time um, doing things that are not fulfilling, striving for things that I don't really want. Um, I'm just very cognizant of having a limited amount of time uh, and, and wasting that is what I'm afraid of. If there's one thing you could change about yourself, what would it be? Uh, I would like to be able to take the advice I give to others more readily. What do you think you're best known for? Uh, Jigsaw, the company that I started. And when you leave this earth, what do you want to be best known for? As a genuinely good person. What do you think is the best part of the entrepreneurial scene in Charlotte? Uh, The energy and the caring sort of empathy for others in the environment. You don't find that in Silicon Valley. You don't find that in New York City. Nobody's worried about the other people in the environment, you know, which which you still find here, which I which I was surprised by when I got here and I'm continuing to be surprised by. So what do you think could be improved here in Charlotte? I'm slow to think of that because I, because uh, I, I feel like it is 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 very much improving. Um, if if you had asked me eight years ago, I would have said just general knowledge of, you know, that there's a world out there. You don't have to risk everything, risk your family, risk in order to do a startup. Um, 
But I think that people are becoming more and more aware of that in Charlotte. And I think the fact that you have a podcast that deals with failure is, uh, is, a, is a pretty good representation. You know, it used to be seen as like, oh, my God, what's the worst thing you could do is fail at a startup. You're like, that's just step one. You know, get out there and fail three, four, five times. So let's talk about your business experience. And since we're on the topic of failure, mm-hmm. let's talk about that. So tell me about Other Screen. I know it showed a lot of promise and you got investors. And I heard that you actually, when you realized it was failing or that it wasn't tenable, that you gave the money back to the investors. So can you kind of talk to me a little bit about Other Screen, what it was, why it didn't work and why you gave the money back? Sure. Um, one of the first things that was, was interesting was the timing of other screen, uh, because it happened within my one year earnout to Salesforce. So I wasn't looking to find the guy with the idea that I wanted to do next. Uh, that was, I was really looking to just kind of ride it out, ride out my, my year and then, and then start thinking about what I might like to do next. Unfortunately, I met the guy, you know, Chris Halligan who is now one of my very good friends and mentor in all things business. And he had an idea and we were talking about it. And the next thing you know, we were doing more than talking about it. You know, we were, uh, we, we got sort of a prototype built. We went, we went out and we won an NC idea grant and, uh, and we were headlong into it. Uh, (laughs) you know, it was, it was sort of the next thing I knew. And yeah, what was the idea? The idea was based on uh, an observation that Chris had uh, that what everybody who watches television now is doing something else, usually something digital. Usually they're on their phone, they're on their iPad, uh, and he was watching his son not watch a baseball game. (laughs) And so he texted him a couple of questions that pertain to the game. Uh, do you think their Cardinals will score? You know, what do you think will happen next type of thing? And he found that he, the guy did not put his phone down. His son did not put his phone down, but he continued to watch the television. And he mm-hmm. was like, wow, there's an engagement thing here. This is an opportunity. And so that's where other screen and many, many other people were noticing this at the, at the time. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that people were, were duly engaged in, uh, in, in, in the, the term second screen was already a thing. Also, simultaneously, the iPad was the fastest selling device of all time. You know, this is 2010, 2011. And so we were coming out into what we felt a very target rich environment. Now, I was just coming off the success of uh, Jigsaw, and he was very successful uh, entrepreneur. He rode Dell from very small company to obviously a very, very large company. Uh, and then went on to found two or three other successful companies that had exits. So we had we both had some capital. We both had some experience. Uh, we were both feeling quite bulletproof, to tell you the truth. And we made a video that we were passing around that it was actually the best thing that we did at Other Screen. Uh, people would watch that and they would say, wow. In fact, Chris, uh, my co-founder, has shown that video to someone in the last year and they were just like, wow, that's cool. You should definitely do that. And we're like, we did that. It failed. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what was the product? The product was, it, what it was, was an app um, that was on running on your phone or your iPad while you were watching uh, a live television event. We started with sports and we would project out to to you, the users, uh, which were only joined by the fact that they were watching the same live event. We didn't have anything to do with the TV production or anything, Sure, but everybody was connected through this app on their iPad. And so we would be sending them periodically, we would send them what we called propositions. Uh, what's going to happen in the game? Is Michael Vick going to score a touchdown? Uh, is Houston going to score before the fourth quarter? Also, Trivia questions, uh, which we ha- which we got created for us uh, about the game that they get that people could get points, and then also the chatting, you know, um, amongst each other. Both, uh, but the uh, one of the anchors that we had was we had what's called a kind of a video jockey, like there was a human being who was one of the five people that worked at Other Screen, 
that had to be present, you know, in, yeah. in our early iteration, which, uh, so there was no automation. So sure. it was pretty labor intensive, but, uh, the early returns, we did it for a couple of, uh, events and people were just like, of the people that came, they were just like, wow, that was incredible. I would do that all the time. Uh, yeah, cause you gamified it also with the we, points. Yeah. We, we gamified it and, uh, um, it was, you know, it was extraordinarily engaging for those that, that stayed. Now, herein lies the first problem. Our absolute peak event, which was for a local TV show, uh, I think where we had the support of the actual television station promoting it, I think our peak event was something like 100 people on it one time, yeah. which we never thought we were going to be an advertising model. Um, but we did think we were going to be sort of a focus group because what we did was we found we had extraordinarily engaged users. We could ask questions, and we would regularly ask questions uh, like, during the last commercial break, uh, what was the beer at? You know, it'd be like Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light. There was no beer at, and and we found that when they were fully our 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 users were, although it was small group, they were extraordinarily engaged, and and they would answer any question. So you could sell the customer data. We could sell the customer data. And we talked to some advertising groups and they said, okay, if you could get to 5,000 concurrent users, which we didn't think was going to be at the rate we were going after the first couple of months, right. we're like, oh, well, we had 20 and then we had 30 and then we had 60 and then we had 51 and then we had 22 and then we had four. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> like that graph was going to wah, totally, wah. totally incorrectly. And it would regularly, people would talk to us. They'd be like, yeah, that was really fun. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we're going to do another game. They're like, I don't have time. <laughs> because it's, it takes 100% of your attention to sure. be responding to questions, trying to watch the game, you know, and actually chatting. And it was like, we found that, you know, millennials were way better at it than older people because who are not used to doing five things at once. Right, yep. And for a very small slice of the population, there was like just the right amount of stimulation. But for the normal person, it was way too much. You know, Got it. there yep. was also no way to kind of leave and come back and, you know, dip in, dip out if you wanted to win, you know, or if you wanted to be on the leaderboard, right. you know, from a points point of view. So that was a sort of a gaping hole in sort of engagement that we, we never solved. And the engagement model wasn't one that people wanted. You know, it, it wasn't. I think that people, if you go all the way back to the kind of the core, super high level uh, need uh, people are still looking at their phones while they watch television. You know, they're still going on apps while they watch television, but those two experiences have not been joined and certainly in any monetizable way. I mean, we never got to the monetization problem. We just, we didn't get to the engagement problem. Right. So that was, um, you know, that was really when we knew we failed. During that, during 2011, sort of toward the end of 2011, we started working with the local Fox channel um, because, you know, they were interested in sort of other screen, you know, engagement, you know, online engagement, we, you know, in conjunction with their, their shows, or we convinced them that they might be interested. <laughs> and uh, we put a pretty hard sales job on them. And we created, uh, we did sort of an other screen during one of their, their shows they had like a talk show uh with it was like somebody in Ramona I remember and it was it was it was it was a, sort of a prime time-ish type thing and they had their users log into it and they were asking questions and it, we were just like the first time we did it we're like it's working this is how it's supposed to be and then we turned our sites and we actually raised money on the fact that we were going to go out to local tv channels you know very finite universe Every single one of them was in super trouble with their business model, and we would provide this other screen platform. And so it was that idea in place that we were just like, okay, we've got a business. What let's you know, we we raise some money, we put some more money of our own money, and uh, you know, beyond sort of a seed to keep sure. it going yep. and test the idea. And unfortunately, almost immediately, two two things happened very close to each other. The first one was we had a meeting with Bayhackle, who is the station group that owns the Fox channel. And they loved us, 
as people. They were just like, oh, you know, you guys are so great. We were like, cool. Can we do it for your other, let's do it for your other channels. Let's do it for other TV shows. Let's, let's grow. Let's grow this thing. And the pained look on their face as they oh. told us, they were like, yeah, you guys are, you guys are great. And I looked at Chris, I was like, holy shit, we're getting broken up with. I was like, this is not what I was expecting to hear at all. It's not you. Yeah. It's me. Yeah. And they, and they were so pained. It was so brutal. Oh. And, uh, and so we were like, and so the lunch ended and basically they described to us like, look, this is how we make money. You know, it's like every, you know, at certain times during the year, the big groups, advertising groups, you know, for, for uh, automotive and et cetera, come to Charlotte and we get. Up, line up at the trough with radio and other TV stations and outdoor, and we try to get a little bit more budget than we got last year. That's where the money comes from. Oh, and then we have this 0.5% of our revenue that we'll put towards innovation. And they're like, you don't have all that, but that's just where you <laughs> fall, you know? And yeah. so it was like, oh my God. So even if we were the greatest, greatest thing since sliced bread, right. that's, you know, kind of where we were fall. Now, this conversation happened about, I think, a number of days after uh, we got this super great introduction to, to a guy up in uh, West Virginia that owned uh, the station group that owned seven different stations, something like that, you know, like a friend of one of our investors. I mean, I, got the, I drove up there. I got the white glove treatment. I mean, everybody from the station was there, the tech guys. You know, the even, you know, even the on-air personalities and whatever. And it was like, I had a completely captive audience. And just for an experiment, I had talked to enough stations, you know, had, who had enough objections that I was like, I'm going to go up there and pitch them the unicorn. Like, we can do everything. And we'll yeah. do it all in person for a thousand bucks a month. You know what I mean? Which was like, <laughs> I mean, wouldn't pay for one portion of what we were doing. Yeah. But I was like... All I want to do is see their heads go nod up and down. And I went through this, and the tech guys were sort of like looking at me like, nobody can do that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, we got that covered. This is how we do this. I was like, pixie dust. You know, I'm like, we got that covered. This is where your sales background like, really comes in. Magic. Yeah. And I went up with, there with the investor who was the friend of the guy. And I literally, I was like, look, I, I'm like, I'm going to stretch the truth a little bit. I am not going to try to deliver something that, but I just want to see, I want them to be like, wow, this is great. And I went through every objection. We can do it all. We can do it all. So I was just like, so when do we get started? And they were like, you know, and I was like, you're like, yeah, we, it's don't, it. we don't have a business here. Like we right. do not, this is, yeah, if they're I, I, not going to buy that, they're not going to buy anything. Right. They're not yeah. going to buy this. So this sort of pivot, which was big, is is not going to work. And so then we that kicked off sort of a furious summer of uh, of constantly meeting like, okay, what are we going to do? We I mean, we talked to radio, you know, we talked to I learned a ton. You know, you talk about like yep. what you learn with mm -hmm. with failure. I learned so much about so many different industries. And then we basically came to the conclusion, we were just like, look, this isn't going to happen. And so if, we, if this had been our first rodeo, and if we didn't have our own money in it, you know, if we just had a venture you know, backing, they would have been like, no, you just, you know, you just go. And we would have uh, gone until we had no money. And then like, you know, which classically happens in Silicon Valley, you know, you go till about four weeks after you have no money. So you turn to all the people and you're like, I know you guys, you know, you're totally believing us, but we can't pay you for those last month and we're not going to pay you anymore and you don't have a job anymore. And we're like, we're not doing that. So we gave everybody like six weeks pay or something, you know, and, uh, and we gave the money back. We gave about 75% of the money that we had raised. We returned it. And so, uh, but we would not have had the power to do that if we hadn't have been, had experience. And probably the fact that we were investors into the, the company as well, we personally. So we were able to be like, here's your money. You know, you will take this. We, right. we have gone down every avenue. You know, we, we didn't just hit a small bump in the road and then we were like, oh, we can't do this. I sure. mean, we looked ahead and we had no clarity to, to an engagement model that works. 
um, much less monetization. So, and that way we were, we were a little different than your, your standard company, you know, that gets some seed investment or gets some early Yeah, and investment. then just rides it into the ground. Yeah, and then just rides it into the ground, which is much more common. And, yeah. and, it, and it's the sort of the VC model is we're going to invest in 10 companies and we don't care about nine of them. We just want right. one we of them. We know nine are going to fail. We want one of them to be big. And actually having two or three of them be sort of bump along, maybe be profitable, maybe return, you know, three times our money. That'll just be a distraction from the, <laughs> you know, from Facebook. So they want you to spend that money that you gave them fast. So to give them some optics into whether you're going to be, you're going to be the unicorn. You're going to be the thing that pays back their entire fund. I'd say we were extraordinarily good at looking at the competition and, uh, and oh boy, when we announced that we were closing other screen, we got calls from all sorts of, all the other CEOs and the, uh, you know, which you'd think we'd be like, rah, rah, your competitors, we don't like you. And they were all like, oh my God, you're so lucky. You know, I mean, oh, that's basically, wow. they were just like, oh, a graceful way out of this, this, you know, sure. this, just this non-engagement. Because they were trying to figure it out and they couldn't figure it out either. They're st still trying to figure it out. You'll see it all the time. You're trying to get the users to kind of interact, you know, real time. Um, I mean, also what was happening was more and more TV was, was going to DVR. And so, you know, what was considered live, you know, live television, sure. uh, you know, yeah, was less absolutely. and less, you know, pretty yeah. much sports, award shows, you know, things like yeah. that, news events. Catastrophic events and sports right. and award right. shows. Yeah, which is... You know, You're like, yeah. hey, check in yeah. on this. Tornado's about to destroy your house. <laughs> like, log in here to see what you think. Maybe you that know? was the mistake. Maybe you should have gone down the, like, global <laughs> climate change catastrophic event live tweeting. Right. right. Game. All right. So when we get back, we need to take a short break. But when we get back, I want to, since we've covered some really juicy good stuff on failure, I want to get into some of the, some of your successes. So stay tuned. Sure. Soreness and pain isn't always the result of activity. This is a 60 second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina. Prolonged sitting in a car or at your job aggravates muscles and joints and can cause pain. A standing desk can help. The key to alleviating the discomfort that sitting can cause is changing positions more frequently during the day. Alternating between sitting and standing at your desk, in addition to taking walk breaks and stretching, can work to loosen those tight muscles and joints. The perfect standing desk should be high enough so your computer keyboard is at elbow level and your monitor at face level to avoid neck strain. Before you start standing at your desk, take into consideration any knee or foot injuries and wear flat, comfortable shoes. This has been your 60-second wellness tip, powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. So let's talk about Jigsaw and the sale to Salesforce. In your bio, it says the idea started with two guys at a whiteboard. Walk me through how it went from two guys at a whiteboard to selling to Salesforce. Was a big exit like that always the goal? How did this, how did this play out? Well, to answer your question quickly, I mean, that wasn't the goal. I was working for an email marketing company. You know, it was uh, essentially the tech bust happened. And then I went out and traveled for a year through the year 2001. And then when I got back, I was like, wow, I've been in enterprise software sales for years. You know, I'm like, am I going to have a problem getting a job? And, and so I went to work for uh, a friend of mine who I had worked with before, never worked for. Um, but uh, he's like, come work at this company. He goes, just support in the storm, you know, while the, uh, while the economy sorted down. And it was selling corporate email, you know, email platform stuff. It was... Uh, and after about two months, I'm like, yeah, this sucks. And, he, and I'm like, I'm leaving. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm leaving too. He was like, but don't go. He was like, he goes, we should start a company. And I was like, doing what? We're sales guys, you know. But I was in the back of my head. It was like, through my career, I'd always been a sales guy, very much a mercenary, jumping from company to company, which was okay when I was single. 
Um, but when I was, I was now married, you know, kid on the way, I was like, okay, if I'm going to be able to afford to live here, I can't just jump from sales job to sales job. And I was certainly well aware that there was no rocket science going behind on behind the curtain in most of these companies, <laughs> you know, big or small. So I listened to them. And, uh, and we actually, we tried a couple of ideas uh, that were unsuccessful. And it was as we were doing a little bit of a postmortem, we're like, okay, when my co-founder and CEO, Jim Fowler, he just started talking through the idea and he was this idea that he had. And it was like, wow, that's the idea right there. Um, you just, you knew instantly. Yes. Yeah. So specifically we had been coming up with an idea. We were just like, we were trying to attack the problem of why remote salespeople like enterprise salespeople were not successful besides the fact that they weren't in the home office, you know, and, we really felt like it was, you know, salespeople are social beings. They need an office to go into. But so we were like, we'll take non-competing sales reps from different companies, put them in the same office. And, you know, and that can be their base. And, you know, they can get a deal. They can strap in down the hallway. They can, you know, hang out with the other people, et cetera. And when we tried to pitch that to companies, uh, Really, the only way to make money in that would be real estate. And there was already HQ and Regis and, you know, no WeWork. But, you know, sure. this was we realized that this wasn't this wasn't probably going to work. And so Jim was like, yeah, he was like, well, he goes, let's just go through the idea. He's like, I know there's something here. And he said he was like, OK, there'll be non-compete, you know, or he's like, they'll come into the office and they can use the same, you know, all the same logistical stuff and um you know, coffee and, and whatever and printers. And, and he's like, he goes, and they're non-competing. He's like, so they can use like the same sales force. They could use the same contacts. And I was like, go on. And he just blurted out this idea of an online community where salespeople pooled their Rolodex basically. And their sort of their CRM system, if you know, where they could get a hold of that type of information. I immediately, this was a Friday afternoon, and I spent that weekend looking out in the sort of the data market. There was no place where you could get email addresses. This was 2003. Yeah. You know, there was nowhere where you could get email addresses, which is what people really wanted. To say nothing of titles, direct dial telephone numbers, you know, for people that were lower in the organization that would actually be, you'd be talking to and trying to start a sales. It was user-generated content and community put toward the problem of, of contact data. And so, uh, and we caught the wave of, um, of sort of general market you know, excitement over social media, even though it wasn't quite social media. Sure. And then when web user, you know, user generated content, web 2.0, we completely were, we were so successful. And one of the huge learnings was just how important timing is because uh, yeah, yeah. we, we created something that was not there. It was completely disruptive. You know, before the, you know, the, that term became so hackneyed, it was the basic definition. It was just like something that provides more, you know, something new for a, a fraction of the cost. And that's exactly what we had. Not only did we have email addresses and we had contact information for lower people lower in the organization, which was absolutely critical. Nobody else had that. But it was a tiny fraction of the uh, of the cost of what people were paying for marketing data for for these contact lists and things like that. So we truly were disruptive. Yeah, and it was user generated. Yes, yeah. So oh, and so yeah. When you talk about the whole margin, you know, conversation, right, right, it's yeah. uh, it, we had people painting the fence for us. We we used to describe it early, you know, and that was very helpful for getting investment and. Uh, once we got over the hurdle of getting uh, our first investment, you know, to invest in two sales guys, you know, never started a company, um, coming right out of the, the tech bust. Um, once we got through that hurdle, from there, it was a lit the fuse. And then we did two subsequent rounds of funding, which was so much more fun uh, because uh, <laughs> people were dying to get the money into, uh, into Jigsaw. And uh, whereas in the beginning, they were just, we got laughed out of several offices and uh, it was quite different. Did you, were you one of the ones pitching? Did you pitch together? Did he pitch? Did you pitch? I would say he was the lead pitcher, but when we were out there, you know, knocking on doors for, for funding, uh, yeah, we were definitely together. 
Yeah. And then from there, one of the core struggles of Jigsaw was what's the website going to look like? Because alternately it would be, it looked like Google with just type in what you want and we'll give it to you to us trying to jog you along, you know, with, with bells and whistles and lists yeah. and this, here's this type of list and here's this type of contact and whatever. And it looked like a Korean social network, you know, blinking <laughs> all over it and everything. And, uh, and so our site would alternately, uh, look, look like one or the other, but the core problem was, I mean, we had so many people coming to the site. We were really good at, uh, we were really early at uh, natural search, but so many people would come do nothing, leave. And which says to them that it wasn't what they wanted, or most importantly, it was for whatever percentage of those people that were coming and not realizing that, that we were exactly what they wanted. So I know that with a, with a startup, and especially one like that, and having sold it the way that you did, there are the highs are so low and the lows are so low. How do you, or what advice do you have for people that are sort of on that journey now? How do you manage the highs and lows when you're in a startup? Did you it's mean so the highs are so high? Oh, you were like, the did highs, I say the highs are, so are so low. That was the other screen. The highs were so low and that's the lows my, were really low yeah. too. You know, it's kind of low. I just came from a meeting. That's my personal experience. It was a, yeah. No, the, so the highs are really high. The lows are really right. low. So how do you manage And sometimes that? they'd be right next to each other. Yeah, it's crazy how fast that you, and you think something's like. Oh well, my I'm going to put so some close. more. I'm going to put then, some more table stakes out there for you. Yeah. Because as we were starting, my uh, first child was born. On we launched the website for Jigsaw, uh, May seventeenth of two thousand four, and my son came along in July twenty fourth, and we were in a rental, and uh, my wife was making very serious bones about like we need to own a house. We need to have a house. We we should probably move to the East Coast. Yeah, mom, so, mommy wants security. So I was vaulted out in 2005 into the housing market where it's just like we, we went through. It was ludicrous. I mean, I made something like 25 offers on homes that were five times more expensive than I, literally that I could really afford to. But it was 2005. People were like, oh, you know, you just borrow it. Sure, you know? yeah. And um, when I uh, agreed to the agreed uh to to buy the house uh it's like i couldn't have my financial advisor do the loan because it had to close in two weeks because the guy selling the house had an offer come in uh an hour after it was closed for a hundred thousand more than what i was paying which was a hundred thousand more than the you know i mean it was it was so crazy so jigsaw's got to make it so we don't go bankrupt the graph that i did was um i'm like okay so uh, my loan is adjusting. The interest rates are going up. And I was like, I have, at this rate, I have six months to where 100% of my income will be going to my mortgage. So that I will then be, instead of the majority of my life that I'm living on a credit card, on credit cards, I will be living my entire life on credit cards. But it w- but that added to the highs of the highs and the yeah, lows of the lows. So much at stake. We sold to Salesforce. And uh, even through that process, you know, there was always the feeling that that things could go wrong. So did you go to Salesforce? Did Salesforce come to you? How did the how did the sale come about? Well, so I, I referenced uh, Dun & Bradstreet. Yeah. She doesn't offer. Mm-hmm. We sort of shopped the deal because we didn't feel as though we were ready to sell. And through that process, Salesforce became sort of formally interested they, they actually said, no, you know, we're not interested in bidding at that time. But I would say from then on, they were, they would pay a little bit more attention to us. And then um, really it was because uh, we had a lot of partnership. They were one of our largest partners. We were actually referring them business. Like our chief operations officer liked to say he was, the conversation with them would be like, well, we could do this deal here. We could do this deal. They're like, or you could buy us. And then when, <laughs> When we suddenly found ourselves in a decent position for what they were calling their their sort of data cloud, uh, then things happened extraordinarily quickly. And then uh, and another thing that went extraordinarily quickly was uh, we announced the deal, and normally that means uh, six weeks or a month or six weeks before the SEC sort of approves it and whatever. And that that all happened in like a week. 
also when the two trucks showed up to uh, to take all of our records, you know, for due diligence on the deal, that happened really fast. <laughs> if you asked any of our GNA yeah, people, getting real. they were just like, yeah, everything has to go super fast with uh, with Salesforce. So what did you do after you like signed the paperwork? How do you go out and celebrate uh, an exit like that? You know, it was it was so crazy because I felt very displaced. And I've talked to all sorts of other uh, people, even people in Charlotte uh, recently that have sold their companies. And there's this strange anxiety, this displacement anxiety. You're just, because it's, I likened it to being on a bus that's going really fast and it's really crazy. And you're like, oh my God, we just got to slow this bus down or I just got to get off or whatever. And then all of a sudden someone just throws you on the ground and you're just like, where am I? What am I doing? What am I supposed to be doing? What, you know, what, what, and, uh, it was, uh, I wrote the, uh, I wrote the blog for Jigsaw, which was, yeah, it was doing pretty well, you know, and it was, uh, and they just came right in and they were like, you can't, you know, everything has to go through a VP of PR. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. Peace out. And, uh, yeah, I was like, that's not what this thing's all about. And, and, and I had no interest whatsoever in trying to find myself a job within Salesforce, you know, because it was either an awesome opportunity or it was time to leave for everybody in the company because that's what happens. You know, it's, it's one or the other. Yeah. And for, I would say, a good solid majority, there were lots of opportunities if you wanted to stay. But for, for the people that, you know, where they were overlap or they needed to go, I wanted to try to help them in any way I could. Um, and, uh, and then also... Yeah, I mean, I in the beginning I was sort of hoping for like a nice transition of the community, but you know they they had no idea what it was, you know, and, they, and it became apparent right early that they were going to they weren't going to do well by our sort of our top members and whatever. But you know, it was, in reality, it was like they bought it. Right. Um, Jigsaw yeah. was really two different companies. It was this thriving community of user-generated content, you know, and that was generating this data asset that could be then overlaid into CRM. And Salesforce had a very clear understanding of how to overlay contact data into a CRM. They had no idea what to do with the community and, you know, where that was vis-a-vis marketing. And like what I always say is like, they looked at the golden goose and they, and they strangled it so they could make one pillow, you know, I mean, they were like, okay, we'll strangle it and we'll pull all the feathers off. You're like, well, then the, then the, then the golden eggs don't just keep coming out, you know? Like, mm. Yeah. Interesting. You have such an interesting. It actually took about nine years to die, but, um, <laughs> oh. um, but, uh, they, they just closed down. Jigsaw became rolled into some other data assets and became data.com and they just sunsetted data.com about a year ago. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really unique perspective to have to kind of watch it go away in that way. Yeah. Um, We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your advice for Save the South. Stay tuned. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by Delivery Path. Are you happy with your website provider? Because I definitely am. I use Delivery Path because they specialize in web hosting, security, and optimization. That means my site is fast, secure, and stable. It's online all the time, and I don't have to worry about it because that's their job, and they're really good at it. They take care of the daily, weekly, and monthly upgrades, so my site is always up to date. Unlike discount WordPress web hosting companies, Delivery Path provides concierge-level customer service. If you ever have a problem with your website, they don't just use chatbots to help you, they actually chat with you. When you call Delivery Path, someone local answers the phone. When it comes to WordPress website hosting, you get what you pay for. So if you think your business is worth $5, then get a discount vendor. But if you really want your website to work for you, then let the experts at Delivery Path manage it for you. And they're offering a special discount for our listeners. If you mention the promo code FUN, you'll get 10% off your first three months. For more information, visit deliverypath.com or email service at deliverypath.com. Do you ever wish you had more confidence as a public speaker? Is it holding you back from getting to the next level in your career? Or are you a small business or startup trying to raise capital or pitch investors? My company is The Pitch Prof, and my specialties are investor pitches, business presentations, and public speaking. If you want to advance your career or your business, hire a communication coach because what you say is as important as how you say it. 
Regardless of your skill level as a public speaker, I can help you communicate with confidence. To learn more or schedule a call, visit thepitchprof.com. Okay, so what advice do you have for the individuals practicing their pitches for Seed the South next week? As an investor yourself, what are you looking for in a good pitch? What are the must-haves? What are the deal-breakers? The more I listen to pitches, the more. <laughs> it's like I, the, the, the simpler my advice has become. Uh, the absolute most important thing that you have to have when you're pitching your company, whether it's an idea or your post-revenue or whatever, you have to have different portions of story. <laughs> so you catch uh, a most important investor in an elevator, you have to have your two or three sentence pitch. You know, if you're talking to uh, your grandmother, you should have a real high level paragraph, you know, like this is kind of what we do, grandma. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, if you are pitching your product, uh, you know, to technology people, then yeah, you've got to have your details crossed or, you know, you should have sort of a 20 minute to 30 minute version, you know, that's pretty substantial. You should have a five minute pitch. But most importantly, you should have prepared for the time period that you have, you know, and, you know, down to the minute, you yeah. know, it's like, yep. don't introduce cross media, don't show a video. And <laughs> if you have four minutes, don't show a two minute video like that doesn't work. I mean, know your audience. I mean, that's whenever Absolutely. you're going to be talking to anybody or you're communicating to another human being, you should know your audience. And, and cater what you're saying and what you're doing, you know, especially if you're trying to get something accomplished. You should probably know what you're trying to get accomplished. That's good, too. Sure. Um, yeah, what's, uh, what's your ask? That's right. really important. Have an ask. You know, like general, you know, like you want people to give you positive feedback. You know, that's cool. But why don't you have sort of an ask and be driving towards that? Um, so if, if someone had five minutes and they were in front of investors, what should be in the pitch? Well, five minutes is, is identical to what I'm, I'm always a panelist, a lot, panelist a lot on pitch breakfast, and they mm -hmm. have five minutes. Yep. And look, if I'm considering sort of investing in a company or if I'm just evaluating any company idea or whatever, there's three things. There's the idea, there's the market for it, and then there's who is it. Who is it? Who you are is by far the most important. Then the market, the potential market for it and your knowledge of that market. And then way down in the bottom is your actual idea. And almost across the board, everybody wants to talk about how awesome their idea is. Mm -hmm. And in reality, it's, it's not the, 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 the form. You should have a hook. It's great to have a hook. You know, just uh, something that everybody will agree with you know, and if it's a little bit, if it's a little bit thought provoking, or if it causes the person to kind of have questions that they're going to be trying to answer as you talk, uh, don't leave those questions unanswered. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but you have to get out who you are, why you, you know, because that's ultimately what makes it successful, like successful right. people in a good enough market will figure out the idea. And the idea probably is not going to be what you know what you sell down the road or or even you know in, in many tiers of of your sort of, of of the arc of your company you know it's yeah, gonna, it the idea change. the idea part's going to change quite a bit um it's uh and in a five minute uh so in five minutes you need to get out who you are you know like what your idea is what that market is who's going to buy it you know and then um and also, very quickly, you know, you need to get your knowledge of what what are people doing about that right now, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of like competition, uh, et cetera. And then, and then you need to very quickly get to what I'm going to do with this money. If the, if your ask is money, then it's like what are some goals? Because that puts a structure for regardless of what type of investor you are, you know, it's like you can start start to model in your head. You're like, okay, well, if I give them this money then here are some road signs, you know, here are some things that they're going to knock down. And that's how I'll know if they were successful, yeah. you know? So it's, uh, you know, just don't give in to, to these huge generalities. You know, it's like, we're going to spend yeah, the specific. 1 million on marketing. You're just like, 
no, no, no. You're just like, you know, we need, right, what does that mean? We need this many users sure. to create this many, and this is how much it costs. We estimate, and you don't have to be right. You know, it's just like you, ju- you just have to be. You, you have to make some assumptions. You have to make abs- yeah. assumptions, and they have to make sense. That's right. all that has to happen. Um, but going back to the five minutes, it's like practice. Practice the words. Yes. You know, and it's like don't get up there and read something, but practice the words. You need to know that what the strong parts of your presentation are and how long they take to say. I absolutely cannot stand when they get up there and everything's going pretty well, but all of a sudden it's like five minutes are up and they, and they don't look even panicked. know. And they're just they're and like, all oh, they, they're like, th- how did this Okay, happen? that means I need to talk 12 times as fast right. and I'm going to cram the last four slides that contain two thirds of the most important <laughs> things, you yeah. know, and, it, and it's like, that's not a good presentation. You know, yeah. my, my goal as a pitch coach, I want to rid the world of bad presentations, like one at a time. Cause it's, that's, we see it over and over and over You'll again. You'll always be busy. <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> right. But it's, I can't, I can't even say how many times I've seen that where it's like, how, you know, that you're going to be at a five minute pitch event. How are you at minute four minute and 30 seconds right. or how, and thinking like, oh yeah, sorry. I thought I had more time. Right. You should have practiced so much that you know where you are at one minute, two minute, three right. minute, three and a half, four, well, it's, four and it's a like half. They, I feel like they're on one end of the extreme or the other. Either they get up there and they're just telling the story that, you know, that's, intriguing but you're just like dude i mean by my calculation you're about (laughs) one one hundredth of your way into this pitch and and you've got 30 seconds you know or they're trying to cram everything into and i'm not like a numbers learner or whatever like i'm taking away an impression of you sure and if you're just you're like throwing 75 slides and all these numbers and all this stuff you know and just trying to get through the material that's actually my least favorite kind of presentation. You right, know, at least yeah. with a storyteller, I can be like, well, I like you. you know, like, well, I, and a story might, might be memorable. You're like, oh, I might accept follow-up from somebody like that, you sure. know, whereas someone who just tries to foie gras gullet me, the, you know, the, 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 you know, I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I don't care if I ever talk to you again. Right, right. Well, and I do also recognize it's really hard to do it yourself, right? Mm. It's just, you know, it's when I work with other people, it's like, oh, it's so clear what needs to happen. And I try to work on a pitch for myself and it's like, oh, what, what am I doing? Uh, it's like, I forget exactly. As uncomfortable doing. and as bad as it sounds, it's like, you know, practice, practice yeah, with another person. And the absolutely. person doesn't even have to know what you're talking about. Yeah. Sometimes it's better if they don't, if you can really make it so well, clear Because they so can pick obvious. up on the other cues that you're giving off and it's like i read somewhere it was basically like when you give a presentation when you give a powerpoint presentation or something it's like the other even in the same language you know the people that you you know are in your industry and whatever people take away about 10 percent of what you are communicating to them so that seems generous so yeah Yeah. so so you got to be really aware of sort of your general what your what the generalities of are you confident you know it's like yeah. are you um uncomfortable you know are you um you know are you rushing you know it's like they're going to take they're going to remember that like if yeah. i'm if you're presenting to me so, i'm going to remember that you were rushed more yeah, than yeah. i remember any of the numbers you put up or even vaguely like what your idea is you know it's like i'm going to remember my general impression of you so you always got to be conscious of that don't get crazy with it but right you know just be conscious of it yeah when i when i'll quote you know client potential clients i'll be like how much is it going to cost and you know it's only a 15 minute pitch mm-hmm. or whatever and i'll quote them you know several hours I'm like oh, it's only a 15 minute pitch why are you spend so much time on it it's like because we're going to go through the pitch over and over and over and over right. and work on it multiple times and get it to a place where you're so comfortable with it right. that you watching you pitch makes me feel relaxed and good. Right. As opposed to watching you pitch makes me anxious right. and nervous because I, I can feel it. I can sense it. We were, you and I were at a pitch event recently and um, you were on the panel giving feedback and you and I had some fun talking about it afterwards about what people should or should not wear (laughs) (laughs) at a pitch so can you just give a brief like you you had a very sort of clear example of what people probably how 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 should they dress when they're pitching they should dress i feel as though they should dress 
in a non-distracting way unless there's a specific point to it. Sure. You know, it's just like, you know, I, I can't think of an example right off the top of my head, but, you know, it's just like, I mean, whatever. If you're pitching a, a Santa sleigh, then dress like an elf. You know, like sure. that, that makes a certain amount of sense. Otherwise, I would dress in a non-distracting way. You know, like right. you don't have to wear a suit. In fact, I would discourage you from wearing a suit. You know, being su- super overdressed is probably not that different from being severely underdressed. Right. You know, but don't give in to people. When people tell you, I love, and pe- several people in Charlotte have told me before, they're like, well, you know, well, I heard in, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, like they want to <laughs> see you, you know, it's like, you got to be dressed like a slob. And I'm like, no, you know, or they're like th- this one guy, he was like, well, I, I, they expect, you know, you to be rude. And I was like, uh-uh. I'm like no human. I'm like no human beings like rude. Yeah. I mean, even if they're rude to you, they don't want rude back. I mean, in general, when I was in sales, I, I was just I took the rule of like you you want to be dressed at least as well as the person you're pitching to, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And it's just like if you're going to the government, then you got to wear a suit. If you're going to a bank, you got to wear a suit. If you're going to a technology company. You should not wear a suit, you right. know, but mm-hmm. you should be neatly clean. You should be clean, you know, like, which that's <laughs> I'm always, laughing because we're thinking, that's always I think we're thinking about the same person. Yeah, we're thinking about the same person. I'm like, so I'm distracted by your dirty neck stretch t-shirt, you know, and it's right. like. And the dirty hat and the right. dirty everything. I'm, I'm glad you're super confident, you know, that what you're spurting out is gold. But like, I personally don't like that type of. I consider that arrogant. Yeah, and I will say about that pitch and that particular person, it's the only thing I remember mm-hmm. is how they, Me too. Were, how they were dressed. Yeah. yeah. Um, does the look of the pitch deck matter? I certainly don't want to see a goddamn eye chart. I I'll always say when I give presentations, I'm like, I'm going to assume that you can read, so I'm not going to read the slide to you. Like, right. if I have words up there, I'm not going to say those words. Like, I'm yes. going to say other things. So while you're reading them, you know, which I'm assuming you're doing because that's human nature. Yeah. And and there shouldn't be reams of words or a lot, lots of little things. But, yeah, I think some images. I mean, I I personally don't love, like, whiz-bangy presentations either. You know, lots of graphics and everything. But some people do. I mean, I want you looking at me. I want you listening to me. Like. Yeah. The key to whether this whole interaction is successful is if we've got some good interplay of communication going back and forth. And that goes back to knowing your audience, yeah. you know, trying to avoid the, the temptation to cram stuff. You know, yeah. you can't, it's really hard, you can't, but you can't force yeah. stuff to, yeah. to people. To, you, you've got to, you know, it's got to be slow enough to digest. Yeah, let it breathe. Um, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have, or that you want to kind of throw in? Uh, no, no, I think, I don't know. I, I, I tend to be pretty matter of fact. <laughs> I, uh, I feel like we, you know, we went all over the place. So yeah. If people want to learn more about you and the organizations you're involved with, how can they, how can they follow you? Uh, the easiest way is LinkedIn. It's, uh, nice and public and, uh, et cetera. And, I mean, message me on LinkedIn and I'll get back to you or that's, that's probably the best way to get, get a hold of me. Okay, great. If people want to follow us on social media, we're at Twitter at FunFailPodcast. You can learn more about the show at funwithfailure.com. If you want to say hi or find out about sponsorship opportunities, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go have some fun.